So this is the first episode of sort of a, a perspective podcast on media relations as an evolving field of, of study and pra- practice. Uh, we're both people who are interested in the development of this field. So that's sort of why we're, um, you know, bringing our two separate but related fields of expertise together. We're at different stages in our careers, it should be said, you know. I'm a perpetually part-time professor, constantly chasing contracts, and um, you know. But I'm, I've also just been a lifelong follower of the media landscape as a thing that is constantly sort of like shifting and transforming. And yeah, we we don't yet know really where this is going to take us. We don't even have a title at the t- at the time of this recording for the podcast. Um, but we wanted to see uh, uh, how it takes shape, basically, right? Right. You know, I thought because our, our first uh, topic is media pitching, uh, which is such a central sort of idea when it comes to like building relationships between practitioners and journalists that maybe we could start with a bit of trivia, media history. Um, you know, in, in my teaching, I stumbled on this, this like difficulty that students sometimes have with um, the, the notion of a lead which is actually such like a simple thing, right? It's just the first sentence of a news story, but uh, it's now sometimes spelled L-E-D-E and students sometimes get really thrown by that. Like, is this a different kind of thing? Like, what, how do I, what do I make of this? Um, And so like the trivia is just like, you know, it comes out of this question of like, when and why did this start happening? Um, You know, this, the spelling of lead as L-E-D-E Uh, I did a little research and and there's like conflicting reports on the actual like uh, reasons for it. But um, Merriam-Webster says that the spelling L-E-D-E is an alteration of lead, right? Uh, A word which on on its own just makes sense. Uh, uh, You know, and L-E-A-D was the preferred spelling for the introductory section of a news story for a long time. But uh, we came to spell it this other way as just a relatively new development within newsrooms, especially it was really in the 70s and onward, an aspect of in-house newsroom jargon. And, but, you know, I think it's interesting that it wasn't until 2008 that this spelling L-E-D-E actually entered dictionaries. Um, And the the reason seems to be pretty simple. I mean, it's just a a potential problem of misreading uh, lead as lead, right? As either the past tense of lead or the rather dangerous metal, I guess, right? Um, so for me, you know, the interesting thing about this little bit of trivia is that it suggests that even when news is printed, it's always implicitly aiming toward a an easy form of communication, right? Like a colloquial layperson register of communication, um, which is, you know, worth emphasizing because it's something that media relations practitioners with their academic kind of training really need to come to understand that, you know, the news that is fit to print is meant to be kind of easily digested and manageable. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's interesting or not. But <laughs> I like it. But, you know, the, the whole point, though, is to really get us into a conversation about where leads come from, I guess, you know, like in consuming the news every day, it kind of just washes over us. The fact that there's just a million leads basically within um, one publication. 
but um, you know, and this kind of leads us into the question of where, like, where these things actually come from. And uh, I wanted to cite a Canadian source, William Ray Carney's *In the News*, which is a book that is an attempt to really try and, you know, give as as close to a contemporary account as possible of, you know, the the media landscape in Canada. He says that uh, in that book that anywhere from 10 to 50 percent of a media outlet's story ideas come from news releases uh, that swamp journalists every day. So, you know, if the primary purpose of a news release is getting the media's attention and to encourage reporters to contact us for more information, it does seem to be a fairly effective medium for doing that. Um, but this is one of the things that we're going to kind of question a little bit in today's episode, right? Um, there are, first of all, like problems with the construction of news releases, uh, chronic problems, which which are worth paying attention to. Um, you know, to, to again cite Arnie's book, he says the news release is one of the most reviled forms of reaching the media because they tend to see more bad or inappropriate ones than useful ones. Um, so, you know, we need to kind of just figure out what the best practices are and think about it from a journalistic perspective. Um, and yeah, like to that end, you know, some of the things that are cited in that book uh, are an Angus Reid survey of news editors that shows that only 13% of news releases are considered useful. 18% of them are rejected for being too long. 11% are, are dismissed because uh, a source can't be uh, reached, um, right? Uh, right. Uh, often... Often, you know, like they're just receiving too many of the same uh, uh, news releases from the same source. That's a problem. And then I think, you know, what's interesting is like 10 percent, which you, when you consider like there are hundreds of these hitting journalists every day, 10 percent are rejected because they are just too poorly written. Uh, they're either not succinct enough or they're not direct enough, these kinds of things. Um so Susan, like you've dealt with a number of journalists and media professionals, do you think it's worth emphasizing here in light of these factors uh, that get news releases ignored that journalists are, first of all, like well-educated people who don't want their time wasted? Is that like, you know, important point here? Well, you know, I'm just going to give a little bit of background about myself. I come from the media originally, the Globe and the Star, and then I started my PR firm and I've had that since 1982, believe it or not. And then I was teaching at U of T for 20 years, marketing and media relations. So I've been on both sides of the coin. And I think that journalists are inundated with poorly written media releases because people who are pitching to, to media don't take the time to do their research. And I guess what, what I'm going to say is the internet has been an incredible tool for me and for other people dealing with the media in terms of being able to really do research and figure out who they are, what they're looking for, and then give it to them. So things are rejected by the media simply because, as you said, they're poorly written, they're out of date, they're advertising, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. And and research, it, it's clear, is like the key thing here. You know, first of all, figuring out who is best to contact. Uh, so you're not wasting your time, but also you're not like on the other side of the coin, as you say, you're not wasting the journalist's time, right? The research has led you to the right entity, you know? And, um, and, and so it's that idea of trying to get a shared sense of um, what is newsworthy within a particular publication, what's relevant. And, and yeah, as you say, like one way of doing that is just through rigorous research. The internet is is perhaps like the best sort of secret weapon here. Um, 
but the less sort of secretive thing is the the fact that we just need to be uh, uh, following the news closely. Like we need to be omnivores of news, I think. And I wonder if you feel that you are actively doing this or if you feel like you're living in a news bubble. Like sometimes I feel like I am mostly just consuming the news that kind of reflects my own points of view, you know, do you, do you, are you, are you an omnivore of news? Do you feel, or do you feel like you're kind of living in a news bubble? Well, right now, right now, I think that I'm living in a news bubble. (laughs) I think before COVID-19 hit, I was probably consuming more, but you know, now I'm trying to filter out and, and figure out what I want to read or see or hear more closely. Yeah, and this seems to be a, a thing that's happening across the board and something that I definitely want us to kind of focus on in particular in this like episode because, um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has, of course, changed everything, but it has noticeably changed the reporting of news and even the way that people are consuming it, like the particular investments that uh, audiences have in like the information that they receive. Um, so, yeah, I definitely want to, to talk to you about that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also you, you say that you've kind of experienced both sides of this equation, but that's not really uh, characteristic in a way. Right. It's worth noting that journalists don't tend to be experts in stuff outside of creating engaging news like they're they're They need us like this is to emphasize really that they they need pitches from emotionally, intellectually and organizationally invested parties. Right. It's just that pitches need to work. They need to work for the news source and they need to convey whatever it is, like whatever entity, organization, um, you know, cause, company you're representing in something like, a, you know, objective, um, not necessarily overtly promotional way. Like they need to work. And um, I thought we could use this as a way of talking about some of the kind of do's and don'ts, the best practices of media pitching. Um, And the first question for me is whether there are situations in which uh, news releases, this kind of conventional mode of engaging with the media, are less useful than other more direct ways of engaging with the media. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we're going to, I'm hoping we're going to talk about, well, one of the things is the online media room, right? And I think that that it's not always necessary to send a release and people's knee-jerk reaction is, I've got some information or I've got an event, I'm going to send a release. So really understanding when the release, how to pitch to the media, whether it's through a release, whether, as I said, it's a... sending them to your online media room, whether it's a story idea. There are so many ways to pitch other than just sending the release. And I think often media get inundated with too many releases from you where if you have not decided what is release worthy. So, yeah. And those, those, those are all about kind of doing an internal uh, audit, as it were, an internal review of like, Um, your own communication strategies to some extent and trying to figure out whether there are situations yeah in which news releases are less useful than more direct ways of engaging with the media like if it's available to us there are clearly times where we should try and go you know straight to more direct forms of media pitching Um, and you know there's a internet marketing expert that I hope maybe uh, I I emailed her today BL Ackman I hope she'll appear on our podcast Um, she admits for example that quote editors don't need her or any other publicist to write to actually write their stories 
they need her to point them in the direction of a good story. Exactly. Um, and to provide, you know, and to provide um, direct, clear angles, you know, simple contact information, um, and maybe sidestep the traditional news um, format, right? And and you you talked about the online media room as a as a key kind of like technology, as it were, um, of ensuring that like all of this information is available. This is another thing that, and, and we can get into a little bit of Scissions, this major kind of like aggregator of media sources and, and a kind of, um, you know, a research tool and analytics tool. Uh, this is one of the things that they kind of emphasize is that, you know, when you're directly emailing uh, reporters, you shouldn't be like, inundating them you shouldn't be attaching like a million things because they're just not going to read them but a link embedded in an email to an online media room will get their attention you know it's just it's all about kind of trying to streamline the process clearly and i Um, and i think really it's about respect you know you have to be coming to them having done the research uh go to your competitors see which media are covering their stories angles etc and really understand that the media you're pitching to, otherwise, as you said, it will be rejected because they're inundated. And mm-hmm. if they feel that you don't understand what their issues are, what their topics are, who their audience is, then you don't have a chance of moving ahead, really. Um, and, and that's the whole thing. It's like, how do you actually do, uh, do this task in a way that works, in a way that kind of you know, combines theory and practice um, in a way that just emphasizes what actually works. And this is why I found um, Cision's 10 tips for media pitching interesting. And I found it especially interesting to compare it to the way that they kind of uh, describe the particular challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. Like there are some things that have changed and some things that have really not only stayed the same, but stayed the, stayed the same, but like um, taken on renewed importance. Um, and, you know, I don't know what you thought about these tips, but I definitely thought they were, first of all, practical, but they also kind of open up a lot of questions about how to go about this important practice. The number one thing they emphasize, and we've already addressed it, is research, like figuring out who best to contact so you don't waste your time and so on. Um, and then, you know, they, they talk in depth about email, right, how to compose emails, emphasizing the need for um, a kind of personal direct tone rather than just, I guess, sounding like a robot. Um you know, AI automated forms of journalism are becoming a thing, but we're not there yet. We still are human beings talking to other human <laughs> beings. Um, and like the other thing it says is like, just proofread it, right? Like try and come off as a professional. It shouldn't be full of typos. Like, so, you know, journalists are trained in how to write well. So you need to make sure that your syntax is correct. There aren't spelling mistakes. You, you don't want to be rejected for these kind of superficial things. Um, they talk about the subject line at length as like a crucial thing that's going to grab the attention of a, of a journalist. And again, like emphasize concision in, in crafting subject lines, um, you know, emphasizing like the importance of the first five words uh, as, as a make or break sort of thing. Um, and then, yeah, uh, they reemphasize research uh, with tip number four by saying that you should know their audience, right? Explaining how your pitch fits their particular niche in like very informed ways. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go over every single tip, but they talk about being reachable, of course, like making sure that um, you not just you don't just provide contact information, but they are that you are actually reachable. I mentioned 
this tip of like using links rather than attachments, which I think is an interesting, maybe obvious, but worth uh, uh, repeating kind of insight, you know? And, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to um, underline is the fact that they, they say that it's good to follow up, right? It's good to actually pursue the story if you're not getting any purchase on it. And like, that's again, like maybe obvious, but it's, it's worth emphasizing that like, it's not annoying to follow up. Um, that might, especially for young practitioners, not be a, a, like an obvious thing that it's like, it's not annoying or pushy to follow up. It's like seen as maybe a sign of dedication. Um, any comments on those? Yeah, actually, I want to add a couple of things. One is in the media release, in the subject matter uh, part, make sure if you're pitching to different kinds of media that you can change that subject line. You know, um, I do a lot of marketing research and I talk about elevator speech. So what is the concise thing that you can put into that pitch into that subject line that will grab that their attention and the other thing that i think is interesting is not following up more than once or twice in other words don't make <laughs> don't keep going back to them you know make sure they got something and i remember for the years that i in the pr firm when i sent something to media things get lost things get overlooked so the follow-up is really important but knowing how often to follow up and you know that that's part of it as well respecting them as i said before Sure. And it does seem like uh, almost an intuitive thing, like being like learning what succinctness sounds like and looks like. Um, and, and, you know, like that comes from practice, I think, in communication. Exactly. And, 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 you know, respectful practice, as you say. And I like that emphasis on like, you know, there is a point at which it is pestering to follow up. Uh, you know, it's not always good to just keep, keep, you know, hammering away at the same thing. Um, I think the the key is to build relationships. So if they know, if they see that you understand how to send something to them, what to write for them, how to create ideas for them, and you follow up respectfully, then over time, they will be really happy to hear from you and uh, encourage you to continue. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, here we can maybe pivot to the specific question of how to uh, pitch in the context of COVID-19 where the, um, you know, the particular requirements, the just the, yeah, the demands of the news cycle have, have shifted toward, you know, on the one hand, a necessary focus on the pandemic and its social economic implications. But then also, I think this is interesting and something that Sishin points out, um, a, a realization that audiences are experiencing a level of COVID-19 fatigue, that maybe they don't want all information on the pandemic. They want like, particular modes of intervention almost on the pandemic where um you know the moment that we're in is causing so much stress and so much anxiety that at a certain point the the news has started to recognize that and started to try and meet that level of anxiety with a certain like tone of reassurance you know for people that are trying to gain publicity this is an important thing to to recognize i guess well, it's interesting because I spent many years marketing restaurants and retailers. And of course, they're one of the, those are industries that are really in trouble. So this is a really good time for restaurants, retailers, etc., to reach out to the media because they're looking to reassure the public and also to understand some of the problems involved. Yeah. And, and definitely that's, that's what I want us to ultimately focus on just as like a practical case study 
is um, especially how businesses, restaurants and bars in uh, Toronto are attempting to survive through, you know, creative media strategies and so on. Um, and, and something that I hope becomes a kind of recurrent theme on this podcast, because unfortunately, the pandemic is not going away anytime soon. You know, tourism in particular is being, you know, powerfully impacted by this pandemic. Um, and there are places where that means an utter drying up of revenue for especially small businesses. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has reoriented the entirety of news. There are whole staffs that are dedicated to covering COVID. And so you have to then recognize that and re renew your research agenda, right? The pandemic has changed everything, but there are also established rules that still apply. So like one of the things Sijit points out, e you know, email is even more important now than it has been in the age of social distancing. Um, uh, there, you ought to like really renew your sense of how to craft like particularly impactful emails. You have to personalize it. You have to make sure there's no unrelated stuff. All the info is relevant, right? Include a press release, include images, links that actually work, all that stuff. And then, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that, and, and definitely this has become a, a part of the new normal, video calls are also paramount. Like ensuring that your spokespeople are prepped to actually understand the particularities of video calls as, as like a means of relating to journalists. Uh, that, that to me is kind of interesting. Politicians, you see it across the board on the news, are just not being actually prepped to like conduct themselves effectively in video calls. Like it's just too. <laughs> exactly. One thing I'd like to add, it, it's really interesting because I think if you have a good news story, as opposed to sometimes the media in the real, the other world would not necessarily focus on good news stories. Now they're dying for good news stories. How have you overcome COVID? How have you survived? How, you know, what are your feelings and responses to it? So entrepreneurs, as I said, retailers, et cetera, people who have been innovative, they're looking for those kinds of stories. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's also, and, and, and those are the, the feel good stories that are, you know, combating COVID-19 fatigue with a sense of hope. Um, and I think those, this is the thing, like positive human interest stories matter now more perhaps than ever. And on a really kind of like, I think, kind of ethical, politically uh, progressive note, I think it's cool that thinking local has taken on renewed importance, right? Like, you know, people aren't as concerned about like Walmart or, you know, the major restaurant chains or whatever. They're, you know, Chili's is not necessarily going out of business, but maybe your local cafe is. And so thinking about how COVID-19 is affecting people at the local level really resonates in the news in a way that perhaps it hadn't before. And so, yeah, like that's that's a big positive of the moment in a sense, something we can take away from this terrible pandemic that, you know, um, people's core values still, you know, emphasize the importance of like local businesses where you feel a, a degree of connection or identification um, with them. Right. Like, so, exactly. you know. Yeah. And, and like, and this is the thing, like for a company like Chili's or whatever to, you know, suggest that they're struggling, even though they have like a reserve of like $500 million or whatever <laughs> they survive on would be seen as capitalizing on this crisis, you know, just like pleading their case unnecessarily. But it, it's not going to be perceived that way. If you're a local cafe or bar, um, you're not going to be seen as simply doing promotion or capitalizing on the crisis. Um, if you're if you're actually trying to narrate your own struggle, 
you know? And so this takes us to like the case study I wanted to um, talk about, which, you know, uh, um, I don't know if you, you had a chance to look at this, but I wanted to speak to this example because I think, you know, it's just perhaps one small example among many of companies getting creative in order to like stave off the like permanent end of their businesses. But um, it, 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 the case study really revolves around one uh, nonprofit called Peace Together, mm-hmm. which is a, a startup that clearly saw a particular niche um, and a newswe- newsworthy way to promote desperate local businesses. First of all, Peace Together, you know, they the idea is that they're selling puzzles. And like, this is an interesting idea. Puzzles have become an increasingly popular pandemic pastime, you know, to the point where local gift and game shops are actually having a hard time keeping puzzles in stock. And so like, in this interesting moment, um, you know, Peace Together has decided to, um, you know, uh, support local businesses by making beautiful, like beautifully rendered puzzles available that represent these kind of local, a really wide array of local Toronto um, businesses. And so it, it speaks to the local angle being important, right? And positivity being a kind of rare commodity in this crisis. Like there is there's a, a, a clear effort to like, as, as it were, kind of rebrand these businesses as part of a community that needs support. And so, you know, the, the company Peace Together clearly saw um, a, a way to pitch their story in a pandemic that really emphasizes these points. And so, you know, like, for example, Now Toronto uh, put together a short article promoting the business. And, and you can tell that their sub-lead on the article originates in Peace Together's pitch. Right, like exactly just to read, you know the sublead. The sublead reads: Put the Cameron House archive tattoo sack and Shacklin's brewer, uh, Brewing together again. Right, I love that. Put 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 these companies together again <laughs> with fundraising jigsaw puzzles from startup piece together. It's like such a brilliantly worded, clever, funny sublead. Um, and you know, so like they're they're clearly putting together a media relations strategy to ensure that it's not just you know, have pity on these businesses and so on. It's like you're buying into something that's clearly creative. There's this whole Humpty Dumpty thing of putting putting these businesses together again. And so you've got co-founder of the company, of the company Rich uh, Poptit, saying in a release that it's, quote, just devastating to think that some of um, our favorite neighborhood places to visit may have closed down. And he's like entirely correct. BlogTO recently listed 60 bars and restaurants that have permanently permanently closed their doors in Toronto um, in a city that's already, you know, as you say, like a difficult city to actually maintain a restaurant in. I mean, you read this article and you just have to keep scrolling and scrolling because the list is so long. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a desperate time. And I think desperate times call for creative measures when it comes to media relations. And I think the interesting thing about Peace Together is also that they can bring together people for testimonials, you know, like other people can come into a media interview or be contacted by the media in terms of the jigsaw puzzles and what it means to them and what it means to them, what these different Toronto locations mean to them. So it really formulates a nice just not just pitching the article but having other pieces to it as well yeah and and you see that too in their robust social media presence mm-hmm. you know there's a way there's a way that something again this kind of like old-fashioned but still creative hobby um encourages a level of buzz on social media where people are going to be encouraged to like post 
themselves doing these puzzles and you get this kind of like obviously free publicity via just generating social media presence, which has to, of course, be um, undertaken as a kind of calculation. I mean, Piece Together has its own Instagram page um, where, you know, they're they're trying to really emphasize this fact that small businesses and artists are suffering right now. Um, but so they've got the social media presence. They've got clearly a set of news releases that are carefully worded. But then beyond that, um, they have their own kind of online media room. They've got a, a website that, you know, has a, um, a really great set of just like frequently asked questions or they're, they're, you know, making available to journalists the right kinds of information. Um, the fact that it's about fostering community and providing something for people to do in the pandemic while also, you know, having this extra kicker of like providing financial support um, and engaging with their local community. They spell out in great detail um, how the price of these puzzles is broken down. It's like really, really simply stated. Um, and it emphasizes the kind of ethical nature of this initiative, which I think is important, right? There's this, there's this use of news media, social media, online media rooms to both drive sales and encourage sympathy, which is so characteristic of this crisis and the ways in which I think companies need to make their cause newsworthy in the context of the crisis. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, it's just the idea of creativity, but the idea that, you know, your pitch needs to be topical and timely. Um, you know, this is something that's necessary for survival, but it's also, you know, the local impact is clear. It's necessary for saving lives, I mean, um, you know, in some sense. Like there, we are reaching a point where uh, the pandemic is producing a level of economic recession that literally is threatening people's like not just livelihood, but their lives. Uh, you know, it, this is a sector where you're seeing the hardest impact in some ways. The good news exactly. stories, right? And it's interesting because yeah. I, I do live in Toronto and every Friday I would go to the Rex to listen to live jazz Friday afternoon, four o'clock. That's how I'd end my week. And then, of course, everything closed down. So now I am looking for some of the local restaurants and and retailers that I can support because I want them to survive. So those who reach out to the media and tell their story and find ways to back it up, I think that's what that that's the best way to use the media right now. Totally.